Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast, season five. Here we are after a brief hiatus. We are back bringing you the latest and the greatest in the world of systemic therapy, where we alternate between hot topics and influential figures. And today we're talking about an influential figure in psychotherapy, counseling, interviewing Bill Miller founder of Motivational Interviewing. I have wanted to talk to Bill for a long time. We'll talk about his story career, especially around one of his latest projects on ambivalence. We all have ambivalent clients. A part of them wants to do the work, part of them doesn't, or if we have a system, maybe one member is more motivated than the other. How do you deal with that? Well, we're going to talk to Bill about that today. If you don't know about the legendary career of Bill Miller. Let me give you a little background. Bill Miller was a clinical psychologist and emeritus distinguished professor of psychology and psychiatry at the University of New Mexico. He's fundamentally interested in the psychology of change, how people change, and a founder of motivational interviewing, which has been particularly applied to developing and testing more effective treatments for people with alcohol and drug problems. He's published over 400 articles, 60 books, including one that probably majority of our listeners have read, Motivational Interviewing, now in its third edition. He's a recipient of the International Jelinek Memorial Award, two Career Achievement Awards from the American Psychological Association, and an Innovators in Combating Substance Abuse Award from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, among his many other honors and distinctions. The Institute for Scientific Information has listed him as one of the world's most highly cited researchers. In a recent book, On Second Thought, How Ambivalence Shapes Your Life, Bill offers a fresh perspective on ambivalence and its transformative potential. Rather than trying to overcome indecision by force of will, Dr. Miller explores what happens when people allow opposing arguments from their inner committee members to converse freely with each other. Learning to tolerate and even welcome feelings of ambivalence can help you get unstuck from unwanted habits, clarify your desires and values, and explore the pros and cons of tough decisions that we all have to make. He shares vivid examples from everyday life and illustrates why we are so often of two minds and how to work through that. I thoroughly enjoyed sitting down with Bill. I hope you will enjoy the interview. And we'll be back at the conclusion. Are progress notes stressing you out? Good documentation is essential for a high standard of care, but the time and effort involved can feel overwhelming. If you've experienced that overwhelm, 
Chronicler can help. Chronicler's intuitive note builder lets you compose excellent progress notes right in your browser, often in three minutes or less. Sign up today for a two-week free trial at therapyshelf.com. That's therapyshelf.com and see how easy high-quality progress notes can be. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. So happy to be joined by Dr. Bill Miller. And whether you're a systemic therapist or not, you have heard about motivational interviewing. And this is the originator of motivational interviewing. And Bill, the first question is always like the origin story of the expert. What got you interested in wanting to be a helping professional generally and specifically what we're talking about today, working with ambivalent clients and client systems. I actually started out to go into pastoral ministry, but majored in psychology as well as studying religion. And my path just more naturally evolved into psychology, though I've continued to stand in the doorway between psychology and spirituality and pass things back and forth. But I just feel naturally drawn into a helping profession and a, a clinician at heart. You know? I love that about you. And the kind of common factor of all these experts we've talked to in the last four seasons of the show is it doesn't matter how big their name is or how many books they've written and what their research career is like at the core, they are a helping professional clinician. And that is essential to longevity and probably doing this work. And we'll talk about your longevity today as we go. But first you get a lot of questions, motivational interviewing. Do you consider it a model or more of a way of being? while conducting a clinical interview. I know you get asked that a lot, but let's start with that of how you view motivational interviewing. I have very much migrated into understanding this as a way of being when you do whatever it is that you do, psychotherapy or diabetes education or primary care medicine or sports coaching. This is the how of doing it in addition to the what that you find in therapy manuals. But manuals often don't tell you what kind of person you are or what kind of relationship you have with the person that you're working with. And so the relational factors that we've been focusing on for almost 40 years now in motivational interviewing, longer in my own research, really cut across systems of psychotherapy. Motivational interviewing is not a comprehensive theory of behavior. It really is about therapeutic relationship and how we do what we do as helpers. Was it your direct contact with clients that helped you inductively come up with some of these techniques? Or did you say, hey, I want to have a way of working with very ambivalent or resistant clients? How did you come up with the way of working? Yeah, that definitely from my work with clients, the origin story of motivational interviewing is that I was on a sabbatical leave in Norway working in an alcoholism hospital where I had been invited to lecture on behavioral treatment of alcohol problems, which I was doing. But the psychologist there, whom I met with on a fairly regular basis, also wanted to just interact with me directly and have me do some clinical training with them. And I was teaching them both behavioral methods and a person-centered approach of Carl Rogers which is what I was doing at home at the University of New Mexico, was teaching both things. And in my own training, they had been integrated. I really learned a person-centered approach first before I ever began to practice behavioral approaches. And so I was meeting with psychologists, and they wanted me to demonstrate what I was talking about. So not just talk about how you do it, but show them. 
And so they would role play clients. They were seeing that they were finding challenge and essentially say, okay, smart guy, what would you do with this? And I would do my best to show them the way in which I'd be working with people. And they did something that my American students seldom if ever did. While I was in the middle of role-playing or demonstrating, they would interrupt me. And they would say, now, what are you thinking? You asked a question, but you could have asked many questions. Why did you ask that question? You reflected something that the client said, as you've taught us to do reflective listening. But the client said many things. How did you decide to reflect that particular piece. And they evoked from me literally some decision rules that I seemed to be using in practice and were rather different from what I was lecturing about in the next room on behavioral treatment of alcohol problems. And we started writing down some guidelines around this, what I seemed to be doing. And the essence of it, or an essence of it at least, was that it should be the client who's making the arguments for change and not me. Rather than telling clients what to do, I was asking them how they understood their use of alcohol and what, if anything, they thought they might do about it and responding reflectively to what they said. And when I hit something that might be considered resistance, and that's a topic we can come back to and talk about in a bit, but when they hit what seemed like resistance, Never push back against it, but instead roll with it, which is something that will make a lot of sense to systemic therapists as well. And also evoke hope, also emphasize and evoke self-efficacy, the sense that there is something that you can do about this. Because if you create for clients the impression that they have a serious problem, but there's nothing they can do about it, you haven't done them any favors. And so we wrote down this set of guidelines out of what they were observing me doing and called it motivational interviewing because it was about the client's own motivation for change. And I like the word interview because it doesn't tell you who's in charge. The interviewer has a different role from the person being interviewed. And indeed, you might be the CEO of a corporation interviewing people to decide who to hire, in which case you're in the power chair. But you also might be a a college student interviewing a famous visitor, in which case the power is in the other direction. And so the neutrality of the term interviewing seemed right. Hearing you tell that story, one thing that came from your colleagues here in Norway, they were curious and they took the time to ask you and you, instead of being defensive, like you then operationalized and explained why you do what you do and you work with them to construct your way of being. So their curiosity led to you being curious about your process. One of the core factors, I think, of somebody that really embodies motivational interviewing is that they don't have it all figured out ahead of time. They view the client as the expert and they let their curiosity lead and roll with wherever the client's at. And talking to you, that's the word that comes out to me first. If I have to play word association, it's curiosity. And to do this work, you need to be curious and not treat everybody like you have it all figured out. Well, and they were curious of, what are you thinking now? How are you going about this? What, why did you reflect that particular piece? And so I love that motivational interviewing, which is a very evocative approach, was literally evoked from me by a, a curious group of psychological colleagues in Norway. I bet Norway has always been close to your heart because of that. Oh, yes. And it is the same thing Carl Rogers was doing because the He started out just listening to sessions, 
very early in the ability to record and listen to sessions and with colleagues saying, what's happening here? What do you think is going on that is helpful to the client? And testing hypotheses. So they would come up with an idea, but then they would see whether that was really true, whether it affected the outcomes of the clients, whether this was happening within sessions. And so this really was the beginning of clinical science in, in clinical psychology, that you can measure what you're doing, you can specify hypotheses to express what you think is going on, and you can find out whether it really is or not, and other people can replicate it. Motivational interviewing, I'm glad to say, has always been in that empirical tradition of Carl Rogers that you don't assume to begin with. You come up with what you think is happening, and you test it and see if you can verify it, and other people can verify it. One of the things that I think significantly impacted my understanding of meeting clients where they're at is the stages of change literature. And I remember learning that in addition to being a young therapist, learning some of these motivational techniques and that all clients come in at a different place and you treat someone in the contemplation stage much differently than you would treat a client in the action stage. So for our listeners out there, how do you personally assess motivation? Nobody's unmotivated. The question is, what is this, what is the person motivated for? And the trans-theoretical model was growing up in the early 80s at the same time motivational interviewing was, and they always fit together. I talk about the trans-theoretical stages in the very first article that, that we wrote from Norway about motivational interviewing in 1983. And I think it's fair to say that most of us who were being trained in therapy back in the 70s and 80s were being prepared to deal with people in the action stage who are ready to go. But there wasn't a whole lot about what to do if the person doesn't seem to be ready to proceed yet. In the addiction field, a very confrontational approach was taken to that. And also, if you're not motivated, go away and come back when you are. That's not good enough. Part of our job is to help people find their own motivation for change. And so what we were doing fit together well with what Jim Pachaska and Carlo Di Clementi were doing in trying to understand change processes more, more broadly. And motivational interviewing represented something that you could actually do at the pre-contemplation or contemplation stage to help people move along and become more ready for change. I think to our listeners that work with many couples and families. One of the challenges in doing relational work is you're dealing with lots of data in the room and very much different motivation levels. In a sense, it's great. I always say when a couple or a family comes in, everybody's there for the exact same reason. However, that's not really realistic. But one of the challenges in doing relational work is you have people in different levels of motivation. I'm curious what your thoughts on that and how motivational interviewing looks differently than when you're working with a couple or a family versus when you're working with an individual. I always encourage therapists to first learn how to do this with an individual because it's more complex when you're dealing with a family or a couple because there are more things going on. There are different levels of readiness in the room. And so if I simply try to do what I'm doing with an individual, when I sit with a couple, for example, a person who's drinking is creating a lot of difficulties and a spouse, and the drinker says to me, I, I don't really think I have a problem with alcohol. And I reflect that, you know, say, so to, to you, it seems alcohol really isn't causing any difficulties. The spouse will go crazy. 
How can you sit there and say that, thereby evoking the other side of ambivalence from the client? So you've got to manage those relational dynamics in addition to understanding what you're doing with motivational interviewing, which is trying to move both people and the relationship along to a stage of, of readiness to make some change. That scenario you give is a very common one for couples therapists, where even if they do not meet a clinical diagnosis, they don't consider themselves an alcoholic. The alcohol is certainly a problem for the relationship. So even if the individual doesn't think it's a problem. So let's talk, we can go down the list you've already mentioned, rolling with resistance, which is one of my favorite techniques to use and to teach the therapist in training. But what are some proven techniques that will work with low motivation clients? Again, pull back a bit from the concept of a low motivation client, because people are motivated. They don't happen to be motivated for what we think they should be motivated for. We call them low motivation, but that's a mismatch in goals at the moment. Yeah. So the first thing is just changing the frame of the name. All right. What if somebody says, oh, my, my partner, my spouse is not motivated or my kid is not motivated. So the first thing you're going to do is like you're doing for us, just modeling. It's not really low motivation. You just haven't found your motivation. And how would you speak to a client like that? Would you use the term ambivalent? How would you address them? Sometimes I do talk about ambivalence and my most recent book is all about ambivalence because in a way that's what I've been dealing with clinically for many decades. And in my personal life, even longer than that. And ambivalence is a wonderful, normal human phenomenon. We actually experience it every day and it could be more or less problematic, but it is a normal thing to both want and not want at the same time. And when that's the case, and I'm working with a drinker, for example, I'm interested in what the person does want and there, we even explore their values. What do they care about most? What do they want their life to mean? What is most important to them in terms of who they are. And then you look at that in relation to alcohol. Does alcohol help you to accomplish that goal, to get closer to being that kind of person? Is it an obstacle or is it just neutral? It doesn't affect one way or another. And you're asking the questions with curiosity and just helping the person to explore how this behavior that's creating some difficulties for them and in a relationship fits into what they most want in their life. And very often the work is happening inside the client. It's not that you install motivation, that you literally evoke it, call it forth from the person. And I have not met very many people in serious trouble with addictions who weren't at least partly aware that what they were doing was not a particularly wise thing to do. But if I take the argument, that's a serious problem and you need to change it, what I do is evoke from them the other side of their own ambivalence and they wind up arguing, no, it's not a serious problem. I don't want to change. I don't need to change. And clients believe themselves more than they believe us. And so you're causing the client to talk him or herself out of changing. When you advocate for change and the client responds very predictably with the other side of the ambivalence. Yes, let's stay with that. So this idea of rolling with this resistance that not making an initial interview all about the presenting problem, especially if that client doesn't think it's a problem. So tell us some of your other favorite techniques as far as working with ambivalent clients. The first process we talk about in motivational interviewing is engaging, which is good listening, is establishing a trusting relationship, 
and really working hard and with curiosity to understand how this person sees the world, how reality is for them. So this is before you begin trying to pursue any particular goal. And it, this doesn't have to take a long time. It's so unusual for people to be listened to unconditionally that even a relatively brief period of that can have quite a powerful effect. But it is important to start there. And that's mainly what Rogers was talking about, of empathic listening and acceptance and conveying positive regards and the kinds of things that I've written about in the book on effective psychotherapists. Just what are good therapeutic relational things? Never mind your theory of psychotherapy. What is it that makes a good working alliance? What is it that makes for an effective relationship? And so we start with engaging. Then you begin talking about what is it that you hope will be different? What brings you here into psychotherapy or to tell me what's going on? And together you work toward finding mutual, that is agreed upon, shared goals for change. And if you know the literature on working alliance, that is a major component of a working alliance that is working together toward shared goals. That's one of the things that is most related to having good therapeutic outcomes. That's the focusing process, which is the second of our four processes, engaging and then focusing. And then when you have clear, a clear focus in mind, when you have a sense of the horizon and where you're trying to go together, that's when evoking begins to occur. So there's some questions that are metaphors. In the engaging process, the, the metaphoric question is, can we take a walk together? Can we journey together? It's about establishing a trusting relationship. The underlying question in focusing is, where are we going? Where are we headed? And getting a common sense of that and then evoking is the discussion about why would you want to go there? What would be the positive things about making that change? And instead of selling that to the client and having the client tell you what would be the advantages of making a change in drinking, for example, or having a better relationship or what, whatever it is that is the problem that has brought people through the door. And all of that before you get to the fourth stage, which is planning. How are you going to get there? Unfortunately, many clinical programs are set up to do a treatment plan in the first session. So that's jumping right over, engaging, focusing, and evoking and talking about how to get there before you've even established a trusting relationship or developed shared goals or found out why the person would want to do that. So that process model, which emerged in our third edition of Motivational Interviewing, I think is a much clearer way to understand and explain what we're doing in Motivational Interviewing. Now, I should talk a bit about resistance, too, because that's a word that we used in the first two editions of motivational interviewing. And indeed, it was what was bringing people into training in motivational interviewing. How can I deal with the most impossible, unmoted, unmotivated, resistant clients? And indeed, we used to start training dealing with those kinds of issues. What we found is if you do the rest of it, if you engage and develop shared goals and evoke the person's own motivations, you don't actually get so much of the behavior that we call resistance. And then a critical thing was that one of my colleagues, Terry Moyers, said, you know what you guys are calling resistance in the first couple of editions of the book it is just sustained talk. It's just half of ambivalence. Ambivalence is made up of a person's arguments for change and against change. And the arguments for change that come from the client we call change talk, and the arguments against change we call sustained talk. 
And indeed, whenever we were hearing just some argument from the client that would suggest they don't want to change or they don't think they can do it or they don't, there aren't reasons to, we were labeling that resistance. That was a mistake because ambivalence is perfectly normal. There's nothing pathological about it, a normal human experience. But it caused us to ask the question, if you take what therapists mean by resistance and you subtract sustained talk, which is one of the things that therapists can label as resistance, is there anything left? And we found there is from analyzing sessions that besides the client arguing against change, that is talking about the goal or the possible change, they also say things about the relationship. And these tend to have the word you in them. You don't understand me. You're not listening to me. You don't know how hard this is for me. Who are you to tell me what to do? The you appears in there, and we call that discord. And that's different from the client saying, I don't think change is a good idea. That's the client saying, you're stepping on my toes while we're dancing together. This relationship doesn't feel good. And both of those are important cues. If you get a lot of either sustained talk or discord, it indicates change is not going to happen. But they're a little bit different, too. Happily, you respond to them in the same way. But we began to try to rehabilitate the concept of resistance. And we disaggregated it into sustained talk, which is just half of ambivalence. Nothing unusual about that. And then these signals of dissonance in the working alliance and the therapeutic relationship that we call discord. Because the term resistance itself inherently blames the person for not changing. Either it's their pathology or they're intentionally being difficult. But whatever it is, it attributes it to the client. Whereas these are interpersonal behaviors, and I'm very involved as the therapist in how much of that is happening. And so we're trying to take resistance out of the client pathology world and move it into the interpersonal world of something that is very influenced by what I'm doing in the moment, in the session. I think another thing, in addition to being curious, that is inherent with this approach, you have to have an alliance, but you also have to be able to see beyond the presenting problem and to see clients' strengths and abilities. So you mentioned this earlier, you are a man of great faith. I guess I'm wondering how that has influenced your work over the years and how we can tap into the inherent strengths of our clients' spirituality many times to resolve ambivalence. It's just a part of who I am. It's not like there are separate techniques here. Somewhere around the middle of the 20th century, talking about spirituality and religion became taboo in psychology. And I was literally told by the director of training, if, if you have to believe in that kind of stuff, just keep quiet about it. And you certainly would never ask clients about that. I never understood why that would be the case. Because first of all, at the beginnings of American psychology and William James, he was particularly interested in what he called varieties of religious experience and understood that as a legitimate topic of psychological study and psychotherapy and whatever. But psychology did distance itself from that domain, particularly as behaviorism emerged. And toward the middle of the 20th century, literally, we were being told that's none of our business. That's nothing to be talking about. It's unscientific. That was not an evidence-based opinion. That, that was just a kind of disciplinary fluke at the moment. And toward the end of the century, psychology was again opening up to what had been its origins in philosophy and, and religion. 
And it's almost like we went through adolescence as a profession and in the middle of the century we're saying, I am not like my parents. I'm not like my parents. And then toward the end of the century, the discipline was saying, maybe my parents knew something and maybe there's some things to understand and study here. So spirituality as a topic, I think, became much more accessible. Psychologists are not particularly religious themselves, nor anti-religious. It just is almost not part of the inner world of many psychologists. But it's very much part of the inner world of clients. And so it's something that is an important part of their value system and how they understand life and something definitely to be talking about when you're talking about motivation for change. Especially if it has worked for them in the past, even if it is not related to the current issue that brought them in, it'd almost be criminal not to mention it as long as it's something that could be helpful for the clients. So I'm curious to what you think also the evolution, when you talk about a 40 plus year career of doing this work, things that your clients have taught you or evolution in the approach, even catching us up to current day, what are things, obviously you've just written this book on ambivalence and we're talking about that today, but what is the current state of doing the work and what you are still learning from your clients? And if you have a good clinical story in there, you're a good storyteller. We'd love to hear that as well. There are lots of stories, of course. Mr. Rolnick and I are working on the fourth edition of Motivational Interviewing Now, which will be different as each edition was quite different from the one that went before. We, we never knew as we were publishing one edition what we would be saying in the next, in part because it's such an evolving approach and research is appearing so fast. There are 1,900 controlled clinical trials now involving motivational interviewing. So it's a huge literature to keep up with. But what, where Steve and I are headed is to try to get to what we're calling the simplicity beyond complexity. So once you begin to understand the complexities of something like motivational interviewing, sometimes it's possible to say it in simple language, to understand it in more everyday terms and not so much technical jargon. And that's what we're trying to do in the fourth edition, to say, what really have we learned from our clients and from the science that we've done? How can you explain that in more everyday language? and make it more accessible to a wider range of people because motivational living is way past psychotherapy at this point and is being used in education, in leadership, in sport, in medicine, in just lots of fields that are not psychotherapy. And yet the processes are the same. And this is not the exclusive province of psychotherapists any longer. Still very valuable there, but it's... Before we even envisioned it, other people were finding it useful in their own disciplines. And so that also is what we're doing with the fourth edition of trying to think of it, understand it, discuss it, present it in a way that's larger than psychotherapy, that has to do with human change and interpersonal dynamics in relationships, for example. So I've just been following this evolution. I don't have a sense of leading it so much as trying to keep up with what has happened and all the places that motivational interviewing has found a home in the incredible array of nations and languages in which it's being used now as well. Often psychotherapies don't cross readily into Arabic and Chinese and Indian culture and so forth, but this one seems to. I think there's something fundamental about human nature that we happen to have tapped into, and that Carl Rogers did as well, that is very useful in psychotherapy and also much more broadly useful beyond the field of psychotherapy. So that's where the evolution is going of this approach. It's made our editor a little nervous, as I think every edition has made our editor nervous, because 
It's changing what was working very well in a previous edition. But clearly, that's where things are headed, that we're, we're looking more broadly at and not just change, but growth as well. So it's beyond just simple problems that people are ambivalent about and thinking in terms of, of growth. Where are you going? Where do your values lead you? Where do you want your life to go? You know? And you can use the very same method to help explore more broadly that terrain of growth. Many times, especially when we're talking about couples or families, there's an identified patient. Somebody's coming with the problem. And if you replicate that and you treat them like the identified patient within the system, they are going to dig their heels in, become resistant. These techniques work so great for that. And usually in psychotherapy, even time-limited psychotherapy, you're going to have more than one shot at it. So that is the benefit of what you're saying in a therapy context. It, let's let this emerge. Let's build this alliance. Let's work on these possibilities. Let's collaborate on these goals. What do you want to work in? Which that's what I love. Now I'll talk to some people that have been greatly influenced by your work, but they're in a medical setting or they're meeting people. They only have one meeting. They don't get the benefit that we get of having multiple encounters with a client or system to build up this rapport. So I think that's a challenge in adapting this to the other domains is you only have a sh short amount of time to plant a seed. How do you deal with that? Yeah. First of all, what a privilege it is for us as psychotherapists in the course of a lifetime to get to know so many people at an intimate level. Very few people get to do that in their lifetime, and we do. So there, there is a wonderful aspect of having more time with people and getting to know people at that level. But can this be applied like in primary care medicine where you got 15, 20-minute sessions to do a whole bunch of things. And behavior change is often one of the things that you need to do in primary care medicine. It, is that just impossible? You need to refer everybody to psychotherapists to do this? Or is there something that within the context of brief interventions can be useful? And it turns out these same principles or processes can be used in shorter, whether it's brief psychotherapy or employee assistance programs, or diabetes education, or primary care of diabetes, or whatever it is, there are things that you can do to actually trigger behavior change using people's own motivations, and not by scaring them, but by finding their own reasons for change. And it's, it's that powerful that even in relatively brief contexts, you can use the same approach and produce a surprising amount of change. And so that was not something I expected. We found it very early. I thought originally motivational living was just going to motivate people to get into treatment. We offered a free drinker's checkup to try to get past the barriers of people coming in for care and saying, you will just give you information about your drinking. What you do with that is up to you. You won't be labeled. This is not a treatment program. But then after we gave them feedback and did a motivational interview, and we gave them a list of all the treatment programs that were available, almost nobody went. However, when we followed people up, their drinking had dropped by 50-60% on average without additional consultation. I didn't expect that. My, my psychotherapy training was the longer time you spend with me, the better you'll get. And here we were finding a relatively brief intervention producing a substantial and health-relevant change in very persistent behaviors that have been there for quite a long time. And that's held up. So it, it's not magic, but it is something that, that can be applied when you don't have long-term contact with people to activate their own 
change to what in medicine is called patient activation, because ultimately they're the ones who have to implement it anyhow in their lifestyle. I say we have professional expertise and people come to us for that, but our clients also have enormous expertise. And when what we're hoping for is change that will endure in the person's lifestyle over time, we must have the client's expertise as well. And it's a collaboration but in expertise between yours and your clients to figure out how is this going to work? Why would you want to do that? What are you going to do? And how will you do this? And so we use our expertise as it's applicable and useful, but also very much draw on the client's own wisdom about what they're willing to do and able to do and their thoughts about how they would do it. Now, you are a humble guy. I'm very honored that you gave the time to talk to us today. And part of, I think, what comes through in just listening to you is your humility, is your curiosity. So even though you are in semi-retirement, you obviously are still very active. You've told us about the fourth edition. The new book on ambivalence is out right now. What do you still have left to accomplish? We talked about collaborating on goals with your clients earlier. What are your goals for this next part of your career? And this is a question I ask model developers all the time. It makes some of them uncomfortable. Some of them, they have lots of thoughts on. How do you want to be remembered in the field of not just psychotherapy, of just helping professions? You're, you're known more, as we said, motivation ring is much more than something you do at a therapy room. What do you have left to do? And then how do you want to be remembered? First of all, I'm grateful and astonished if I were only remembered for what has happened already, to know in your lifetime that what you have done has made a difference in a profession and to so many people, that's amazing. And part of what I feel is contentment. I don't have major accomplishment goals, and often I have not. I've more been following open doors or interesting lines or cues from unusual findings that we got. So I'm more of a sense of following than leading. And I don't know. I didn't know that I was going to be drawn to a book on therapeutic process. And I got there through the work on motivational interviewing. Of what is it that makes an effective relationship? And why is it that some therapists are so much more effective than others when they're allegedly doing exactly the same thing, even using the same treatment manual? One of the main predictors of client outcome is the therapist who treated them. And what? Why is that? We've been fascinated with treatment techniques in America and who has the coolest technique or manual or whatever. But who the therapist is and how they do what they do accounts for much more variance in outcome than the particular school of psychotherapy or the technique. And we've, I think, overinvested or been overconfident in particular methods and believing that our method is better than other methods and not paid enough attention to the relationship. So that's a direction I feel drawn in. And that's more what happens to me, that I feel drawn in a particular direction. And right now, feeling more drawn toward how do you teach those attributes of effective psychotherapists? Never mind your school of psychotherapy. Whichever school of psychotherapy you're in, the same kinds of attributes of therapists seem to be associated with better outcomes. How do we teach that? Because in, in my own training, other than the initial training I got in person-centered approach, for which I'm very grateful, it was mainly focused on how to do particular behavioral techniques or cognitive techniques or whatever. That's a, an important part of the picture, but maybe not the biggest part of the It matters what we do, and it really matters how we do it as well. 
And I think often that latter piece has been ignored or an afterthought in clinical training. And I think it might be better to come to the forefront and make that the first thing that we teach clinicians how to do, how to have a therapeutic relationship before you settle into and commit to a particular theoretical orientation to what you're doing. So I guess I hope I may have some influence in that direction of encouraging clinical training to pay more attention to therapeutic relationship and these fundamental therapeutic skills that clearly do matter, this solid science there, that, that they do matter regardless of the techniques being used. So maybe that's a direction. I've tried in my life to, to humanize care uh, in medicine and it's certainly in addiction treatment in many areas to have the way in which we do care just be more humanly attuned and sensitive. So I don't know where my work goes from here. And if it ends here, that's fine with me too. I don't know how long I'll be on the earth, but I'm enormously grateful for what has already happened. Content and grateful. And certainly I am both for you giving us this time. And we have a lot of people that in addition to reading your work, will want to drop you a line or continue the dialogue. If people, after they listen to this, want to reach out, what is the best way to reach you, Bill? Email, and my address is no secret. It is, I get and respond to lots of email. The address is wrmiller at unm.edu. So that's the University of New Mexico. wrmiller at unm.edu. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another informative installment of the AAMFT podcast. Bill Miller, gentleman and a scholar in the true sense of the word. It's WilliamRMiller.net. That is the website beautifully laid out where you can see everything Bill Miller related, including all of his books. The book on ambivalence that we talked about on Second Thought. He's got some great books around spirituality that we referenced. Also, if you want to apply motivational interviewing, whether it be alcohol, diabetes, other healthcare settings, it's the place for you, WilliamRMiller.net. You can find out more about us which we love hearing from listeners, the AAMFT podcast. You can contact me, Eli at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com. I'm also at EliKaram.com, E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M.com. So happy to hear from you. You, the listener, give us many ideas for the show, both the topics and the speakers. So please keep that coming. And I can't wait to be with you in this fifth season telling you about everything great in the world of systemic therapy and AAMFT. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. And the AMFT is simply at the AAMFT. Our hashtag is stay systemic. If you want to see the undercurrent of this show, what drives how I interview and what I look for, the common factors in systemic therapy, my book with President-Elect of the AMFT, Adrian Blow, is out from Rutledge. It's bringing common factors to life in couple and family therapy. 
Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.